Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where we invite our history and heritage professionals to lower their blood pressure by confrontation therapy. The podcast that hopes to paint an accurate picture no matter how much false information is fed through. I am your regular host Paul Bavel and I am here as ever with the very natural intelligence of Kyle Glover. Oh hello, you're far too kind. I know, I know, I should be nasty to you in future. Mm. So we're at Series 8 now, which uh, is pretty impressive given that we ran out of friends to ask as guests about halfway through Series 2. So I'd like to take a moment to say thank you to everybody out there who has supported us so far, whether you're a guest, whether you're a History Rage, or whether you're a subscriber. And clearly, having reached eight series, we can safely say, safely say, that we are now more popular than Deep Space Nine. Take that, yeah. Star Trek. Once again, many people are saying this. I mean, yeah, sure, we control how many episodes there are. We control when episodes are brought out, but official, more popular than Star Trek. Yeah, and more time travel as well. Mm. So this week, dear Ragers, we are taking a look at what is possibly an overused and underdesigned area of the history world, where science and history meet to produce truly catastrophic results, where mad scientists meet mad historians and chaos ensues. To help us lift the mask and see the real picture this week, we are joined by classicist and art historian, Dr. Kira Jones. Kira, welcome to History Rage. Thank you so much. I am very happy to be here. Feeling angry? Oh, yes. Always. And now you are smiling a lot for somebody who's that angry. You know, it's kind of like, you know, the Hulk. Like, my my secret is to just always be angry. (laughs) Well, you came to us during our surprising Hall of Rages where we just put out a request for people who might, you know, hate the Tudors or want to defend the French. And we are still working through that list. We have got five series uh, off the back of that list. That was, that was epic. But prior to that, our paths hadn't really crossed. So can you give us a beginner's guide to you and the field and the work that you're involved in? Yeah, of course. Um, so as you said, I am a classicist and art historian. 
Uh, I work a lot on uh, ancient Rome and ancient Greece uh, as they're portrayed in modern media. So uh, I work a lot on analyzing video games, uh, anime, manga, films, basically, you know, anything within the last 50 years where some creative decided, okay, I'm going to do a take on Greece or Rome. And then I come in and analyze it. Would now be a good time to mention that The V Hundred is one of my favorite films. <laughs> you know, it's a not it's really, an interesting course, film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, I, I have thoughts on Three Hundred as well. Yeah, um, very, very interesting film for sure. I'd like to ask one thing because now our series One Rager, our first ever Rager, currently holds the title for the best job title, which was Conservator mm-hmm. of Human Remains, which I have to say is the is a classic. That's hard there. to beat. Yeah. You have got to say, though, have got, I think, our coolest IMDb credit so far. <laughs> Latin consultant for one division. Mm-hmm. Yay. Yeah. To be fair, that wasn't just me. I was working with a couple of other people on that. But uh, I was the Latin consultant for Conjuring 3 as well. And um, for Red Notice, uh, which was supposed to have an entire Latin scene that got uh, cut at the very last minute. So it didn't feature in the film? No, no, actually, um, I was supposed to be working with Dwayne Johnson, which would have been amazing. Uh, and I was sitting on site all day, and it got so late that they just had to cut the entire scene because they did not have time to film it. So <laughs> I got paid very well to do some recordings and sit in like an empty room all day. Uh, and, you know, not teach Dwayne Johnson Latin. <laughs> For shame. You see- it would have, would have been an excellent addition. I know for a fact that he listened to my recording, so technically I can call myself the Rock's Latin teacher. Yeah. That's, Get him listening to officially, this. Officially the best title we've had now. Yeah, yeah there we go. Sorry, Cat. Yes. <laughs> I might put that in the quotes. Okay, so... That aside, let's get into things that may even be even more interesting. So, you know what History Rage is about? This is the Rage question then, Garrett. So, would you please tell us what you wish people would just stop believing? All right. Deep breath. We really, really need to stop with the fucking AI portrait reconstructions. Like, they, they they need to burn. They all need to burn. I will help burn them. Like, J-Hope level of arson, you know, destruction level, you know, Troy, like, ravaging of cities. We just, we, we need to stop. Okay. That one came yeah. at me from a little bit of left field. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, can you, can you give an, a sort of explanation before we kind of dive into ripping them apart? Um, mm-hmm. Can you give us an explanation as to... You know, what these are. Where right. where do we see them? Of course. So, um, you know, if you hang around on, like, history corners of the internet long enough, you probably end up seeing some posts that are like, you know, this is what Napoleon really looked like. Or, you know, finally, we understand what Cleopatra really looked like. And they'll show you this kind of photorealistic picture of a person that is you know, supposed to be Cleopatra. Generally, these are either done um, 
forensically by a forensic scientist who will like reconstruct you know um skeletons for crimes and stuff like that mm -hmm. uh or uh, more recently people have started feeding lots and lots of um ancient images and things that they scraped from the web through an ai generator uh and then it spits out a portrait which is supposedly mm -hmm. bias free and you know they put that out and people say wow you know that looks exactly like what i pictured them as looking like <laughs> except that they're usually wrong they're, they're yeah. usually very very fucking wrong <laughs> yeah <laughs> i suppose if you start with a bunch of images that are not because if your end yeah. result is we're going to combine all these images to get what they actually mm -hmm. look like you're probably mm -hmm. starting with 20 images that are not what they actually look like and <laughs> i am somewhat of a scientist more than a historian as a background and i think if you mm -hmm. start with 20 false results mm -hmm. and combine them you're going to get one fault result that's 20 times as false exactly yeah Right then, now let's start ripping them apart, okay? Uh, Kyle, yeah. over to you. Yeah, let's jump straight in. Um, what are some of the worst examples? What is the worst reconstruction horror that you can give to us and we can link in the show notes? Yeah, um, that would have to be uh, the Nero one that's uh, that's floating around. Um, I've got an entire Ooh, yes. like long ranty thread on it pinned on my Twitter page. It was um one of the more ai type reconstructions um what uh this guy did was he took uh, probably one of the most famous um portraits of nero it's in the uh, capitoline museum in rome and he took like color samples from various um frescoes i believe uh and roman paintings and then looked at um a guy named suetonius who wrote the 12 caesars it's it's made out to be like a biography of each of the first 12 Caesars, but it's, it's kind of like if you get like a tabloid um, history yeah. of the Royal family and call that history, you know, it's, it's not really going to be the most unbiased sort of thing. Um, Suetonius is all about sensationalism, but he's also like one of the clearest sources that we have on a lot of these people. So, you know, folks tend to read it and take that as fact. So he takes all of that stuff and he does this reconstruction of the Nero portrait that ends up looking a little bit like, like if you took like the, the really big guy from the Goonies film, uh, <laughs> blanking mm -hmm. on his name, but you know who I'm talking about, right? Yeah, I know the one. Yes. I'm a yeah, fan. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So if you take him and like put him in a Renaissance painting, uh, that's about what this reconstruction looks like. Or yeah, like I've... some sort of like Slytherin henchmen, um, you know, from the Harry yeah. Potter films. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. Sort of uh, that's... malformed goon looking sort of Yes. Character. Yes, yeah. exactly. And uh, exactly. We'll, we'll put a link to this picture up, but I'm looking at this now and there's there's definitely a Habsburg chin right there in the middle of the Roman Empire, isn't there? Yeah, and uh, apologies to uh, any of you who are seeing this for the first time and now have to uh, have that image live in your brain. I'm so <laughs> yeah, sorry. It's never leaving. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yes, and the I... funny thing is that the, like, it's spot on with the actual marble portrait. You know, that, that is what the marble portrait looks like. He didn't change that at all. Mm, just applied filters and colour and tone. 
Yeah, this is one of the mm-hmm. things that's always bugged me with Reconstruction, and particularly mm-hmm. um, myself. Well, no, not particularly myself and, uh, and Carl per se, but the one of the living history groups that we were involved in was quite heavily involved with the funeral of Richard the mm-hmm. Third, and mm-hmm. you know, so we all we, we all tuned in to watch the reconstruction of Richard the Third from the skull, and, only right. to be you know watching people be absolutely blown away that it looks just like his portrait in the National Portrait Gallery. I mean, who would have right? thought? Shocking. Yeah. <laughs> so the yeah. emails that you sent to us um, mentioned mm-hmm. the Cleopatra coin, uh, which mm-hmm. uh, I, which I believe is going to do create some rage. So again, when, what can you tell us first of all about the coin and the image that's on it, and then yeah. how that's used to make the the reconstruction of what Cleopatra is, and then why she isn't that. Yeah. Um, can I say one more thing about the Nero uh, before we start on that? Certainly. Please, please do. Okay. Yeah. So the biggest problem with the Nero portrait is that, you know, 90% of that portrait is not ancient at all. And the part that is ancient yes. is not even Nero. So if you look at the original one in the Capitoline Museum, um, you can see a line that's kind of running down from, you know, his temple to his eye. And then you can follow like a line of discoloration across his nose. So you end up with kind of like a small Phantom of the Opera section uh, of his face. Yeah, sort of. Listeners won't be able to see, but sort of this, sort of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's got like both eyes, most of the nose, some of the cheekbone, and that's it. Um, It was originally a picture or a portrait of the Emperor Domitian, uh, who was, you know, quite a while after Nero. also considered tyrant, but you know their their portraits are pretty different. But when this one was reconstructed, uh, especially in uh, Baroque Italy, people were really invested in having like complete series of Roman statues of the Caesars. They wanted all twelve. But mm. when Nero assassinated, uh, a damnatio memoriae or a uh, condemnation of memory was laid down by the Senate, which meant that. You know, they were basically going to really obviously erase him from history. So they were going to go around, smash up all of his portraits, chisel his name off all the monuments. You know, not enough so that you didn't know who it was, because, like, you need to realize that this person was bad enough to have their name erased. But, you know, enough so that, like, you can get the severity of the thing. So as a result of that, there just weren't that many actual portraits of Nero floating around. Mm -hmm. So... What happens is, you know, the cardinals and the other really rich art patrons in Rome and Italy would either have completely new portraits made in an ancient style, or they would get like a small piece of an ancient portrait like this and then have the rest reconstructed around it. And because they decided that it was going to be Nero, uh, they went ahead and reconstructed this one based on um, what I would argue are his coin portraits. Now, obviously, you can get a decent amount of mileage out of a coin portrait, but it's always going to be from one side. It's not going to be as detailed as a marble portrait. And, you know, it's going to be a little bit exaggerated in certain features, you know, just so that they show up on the coin and you can actually make them out. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Nero was not interested in 
like a what we would call a photorealistic depiction of himself on coins. What I mean, if you have a choice between like someone seeing your actual face and like seeing something with a million Instagram filters that makes you look like a rock star, which one are you going to choose? Sign me up. Right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely no one is going to go with, you know, their original face if they have a choice. And you know, the emperors, they're basically at the head of this big propaganda machine. They have an entire language of facial features and hairstyles and clothing that all send very specific messages. And Nero's just picking from that catalog. So when they remade the statue in Baroque Italy, they were working off of that. They were working off of, you know, the descriptions in Suetonius, which were also heavily biased. And we end up with this really awful looking portrait that is just close enough to the coins where you can say, oh yeah, you know, that that's Nero. But, you know, it, it's not based on, you know, anything that he would have actually made of himself, mm. uh, which is why it comes across looking so exaggerated. Uh, and unfortunately, it's also the most famous one because people look at it and they say, oh yeah, you know, that, that guy looks like a tyrant. He looks like someone who would you know, play his lyre while Rome was burning down. You know, he he looks like that guy that beat me up in sixth grade. I hate him. So, yeah, obviously it's going to be accurate. But, you know, it's just, it's not. You know, it, it's not really based in, you know, any sort of fact whatsoever. I suppose yeah. as well, that if I go in a little, because I'm not a classicist. Hell, I'm not mm -hmm. really even a historian. Um, but in, if you were to look at, say, a coin relief of Henry V, mm -hmm. or, or in fact, like the portrait of Henry V, you, you just mm -hmm. can't make a reconstruction off the back of that because the side of Henry V's face that you're not seeing is massively different, courtesy mm -hmm. of huge arrow scars from the Battle of Shrewsbury and things like that. And these, you, mm -hmm. I won't tell, I'll come, I'll come on to coins if you, if you don't mind, because you had mentioned, yeah, them. yeah, let's do it. Um, because you mentioned the Cleopatra yep. coin, which I'm assuming is just going to be mm -hmm. a similar relief, side-on profile mm -hmm. look. Um, mm -hmm. I've yeah. mentioned the you know Henry the Eighth image. What? Mm -hmm. What can you tell us about that coin and its image, and uh, and then yeah. how how it's used and what it doesn't tell us about Cleopatra? Right. So. You know, when people think about Cleopatra, they generally go straight to like the Elizabeth Taylor, you know, seduction in a rug um, sort of setup. Yeah. 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 So there's this question like, you know, how hot was she? Like, would I fuck her? I mean, like, was Caesar just like really into that sort of thing? Like, how did she kind of become this femme fatale? Hmm. So people naturally want to know what she looks like. We've got a couple of portraits of her. Um, there's one at um it's at the uh, Altes Museum in Berlin. Uh it's a really nice marble portrait. It's got a lot of pigment left on it. And you know, she's got, you know, kind of a bigger nose than normal, but otherwise she just looks like, you know, your typical idealized female figure. Uh the coin is um it's a tetradrachm, which is a uh Greek value of coin uh that was issued by uh Mark Antony, um her second husband slash boy toy. And between uh, 37 through 33 um, BCE. And it has uh, her head on the one side and his head on the other. Uh, the problem comes that um, 
you know, Anthony himself, he, he kind of looks like Kermit when he's scrunching up his nose. Like, he, you know, <laughs> like when like Kermit is like having a bad reaction to something and like his entire face just collapses. Yep. Like it's fine for Kermit, but you know, it, it's not looking that great on Mark Antony. Let's put it that way. Um, so Mark Antony has that look going on and you flip it over, you look at Cleopatra, you get this woman who's got all kinds of pearls on, her hair is nicely braided, she's got a diadem, and her face looks exactly like his. Okay. So, yes. It's yeah. coming together yeah. of some severe narcissists here, isn't it? Suspiciously. <laughs> yeah, um, so, you know, people look at this client, it's like, oh my god, you know, she, she looked like a man, you know, she was not hot after all. You know, this is this is like a scandal of the century here. Like, what what the fuck is going on? What's going on is that Antony was very invested in making Cleopatra legitimate in Rome. Caesar was as well. Uh, Caesar brought her to Rome, introduced her as the mother of his son. Uh, she was already immensely powerful in Egypt. Uh, absolutely brilliant. Spoke a million languages. Uh, very well versed in politics and strategy. But of course, you know, the, the real question is, you know, is she hot or not? Um, but that, that's another rage yes. um, entirely. <laughs> so um, putting that yes. one aside for now. So you look at this coin, it's like, she's not hot. She just looks exactly like a man. And why would they portray her as anything other than what she actually looked like? And of course, she's a powerful woman. So we're going to assume that the uglier one is true. What Anthony was interested in when he, he minted this coin was to link her, her visually with himself. And the Romans did this all the time. We see it with Julius Caesar as well. So if you look at the one portrait we have of Caesar from when he was actually alive, uh, it's it's kind of weird looking. You know, it's in the, what we call a veristic style. Uh, it focuses on this um, idealism of like being super old and wise and, you know, not fond of luxury at all. Uh, like, you know, typical, you know, old guy from out in the countryside doesn't like kids running on his lawn. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you know the stereotype. So th- this is yeah, what the was... old man, Yeah, exactly. This is what was in vogue in Rome at the time. Um, so it's not that, you know, the portraits are accurate because they're ugly and no one would portray themselves as ugly if they had a choice. It's because, you know, that's that's what was hot at the time. But as soon as Augustus comes around, he decides to change up the styles a lot. So Augustus, you know, if he was around today, he would be using all the Instagram filters. Um, he, he's like Rob Lowe, you know, he just like hits one age and then he never changes after that. Uh, so like all of his portraits, except for like maybe one curl of hair at his temple, they stay the same throughout his entire reign. And it was pretty long. So you've got this old guy, you know, at the end of his reign, uh, he's probably a lot more overweight, he's sickly, and if you're living up in the provinces in Germania, the only way that you see him is still in this statue that makes him look like a 25-year-old in the prime of his life. Now, obviously, that's not going to mix with, you know, super old, grouchy Julius Caesar. So he reworks all of the new portraits into this new style. So after his death, Caesar suddenly drops like 30 years, you know, off of his face. And, you know, again, this just underscores that the point isn't that 
it's how he actually looked. It's that now he looks like Augustus. Um, Augustus needs to make himself look like Caesar to make himself legitimate. And that's what Antony is doing here with Cleopatra. He is making Cleopatra look like him because he is already established in Rome. And when you look at the two of them, you can say like, oh my God, those two are perfectly in sync. You know, mm -hmm. uh, it's like there, there's no difference between them. They are so in tune with each other. They even look like each other. And that that's what we end up going with here. The Romans do that all the time in their portraits. So it's pretty much guaranteed that Cleopatra looked almost nothing like this. The big nose, maybe we see that repeated a lot. But as far as her looking like, you know, a slightly more petite version of Antony, absolutely not. Is there a case though where you mentioned this legitimacy um, within Rome? Mm -hmm. is, it, is it an attempt to make her more Roman and less I'm not going to use the phrase Egyptian. I'm going to use the phrase Macedonian, um, okay. I think, isn't she? She's a, I believe she's a Macedonian Greek, Kyle. Is that correct? Oh, that's a kind yeah, of I'll leave that one alone. Yeah. How but, about Ptolemaic? Well, whatever well, she is, she's not Hellenic. Roman. Yes, Ptolemaic. Yeah. 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 She is very not Roman. And, you know, Antony had been married to uh, Octavian, soon to be Augustus' sister. Uh, who was, you know, the perfect Roman woman. And he just like tosses her aside, flies out to Egypt and shacks up with this really exotic Egyptian queen who, you know, the stories tell us was like dissolving entire pearls in her wine so that she could drink the luxury. Again, did that happen? We don't know. Maybe it did. Maybe she was putting on a good show. Maybe she liked the taste of pearls. But you know, this this idea of like unrestrained luxury was something that was, you know, the, the Romans viewed it as a very bad thing. Hmm. Yeah. But you also get a lot of Romans like Mark Antony who are like, you know, I kind of like the parties. Uh, I, I kind of like people looking at me like I'm Dionysus and, you know, getting to shack up with a hot, smart woman every night. I like having all of this really rich stuff around me. And, you know, there's that whole history of kind of over-the-top luxuria in Hellenistic Greece and um, the Hellenistic Mediterranean that, you know, a lot of Romans, they're, they're kind of into. So you've got that trend going on. And then you've got Augustus, who is like, okay, if I'm going to beat Antony, who is now like the Hellenistic Prince of Rome, you know, I'm going to need to go hardcore veristic here. Um, I am going to need to go in completely opposite direction so he rolls mm. out all of these moral reforms he's got you know his portrait style that's based on you know not hellenistic greece but fifth century athens which is like super idealized and based on mathematical perfection and philosophy you know these are ideals that you know a lot of you know contemporary romans within rome could get behind you know because it's classy you know it's fifth century rome but it's a lot more respectable to their minds than, you know, whatever the hell rager is going on in, um, you know, in Egypt right now with Cleopatra. So Antony is attempting to make her a lot more palatable to the Roman audience by using the Roman portrait language here um, rather than, you know, anything sort of Hellenistic or Ptolemaic like that. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah, we've touched on this a little earlier, mm-hmm. but um, what sort of information and data is used to create these reconstructions? Uh, you already mentioned the partially complete statue of Nero, mm-hmm. coins, mm-hmm. Um, people slamming together pictures they've cribbed from the internet. Right. How do these reconstructions actually come about? Right. So uh, so we know a lot, a lot more about how AI works now that it's kind of, you know, been around infecting the art market, um, you know, for a while. And, you know, AI basically takes like a common denominator out of a bunch of examples. So, you know, if you run a Google search on, you know, say portraits of Cleopatra, you're probably going to get a mix of you know, actual ancient stuff, contemporary illustrations, uh, you know, maybe some Elizabeth Taylor in there, you know, 1950s Hollywood. You can refine that to ancient images only, but the AI is still incapable of looking at it critically and saying, okay, is this really ancient or is this just tagged as ancient? Yeah. You know, is this actually Cleopatra? How much has this been reconstructed? You know, how does this match up with the text sources? You know, the AI is very limited in that regard. It's just going to give you a common denominator. So if you're saying that your AI portrait is, you know, the absolute most realistic version, um, you're bullshitting because there is no way that's possible. It's assuming a lot on the part of the data. And, you know, quite frankly, it's just being really fucking dismissive towards you know the actual science and style of ancient portraiture (laughs) you know there's they again they weren't interested in being photorealistic there were so many other interesting things that they could do with their portraits and that's what they did so instead of you know looking at all that really fucking cool stuff that they could look at like you know, okay, why is Cleopatra wearing all these pearls? Why does she look like she has Mark Antony's face grafted onto her skull? They're looking at, you know, okay, what is this AI program going to tell me? And, you know, how how can I get more clicks on the internet with that? Then, of course, you've got your uh, forensically reconstructed ones um, where they apply kind of the same... um, kind of the same science behind, you know, forensic reconstructions of actual human skulls, which is fine. But again, you're bringing a lot of your own bias into that. You're going to be biased based on, you know, skin color. Uh, Scientists can get kind of a range of skin color from your DNA, but the teeth have to be in really good condition. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty rare to actually get that 
good of a quality. Um, you're going to have to make a lot of guesses on the hairstyle, um, on how weathered the face was, how many wrinkles there were. So you can get the basic musculature down uh, and you can get kind of, you know, a rough version of what the person might have looked like. But once you get to that finishing stage, you're going to be making assumptions and you're going to be looking at other yeah. things like, you know, portraits um, in the National Gallery, things with color, literary descriptions, which, you know, are all, of course, hugely biased. Yeah. I'm thinking in particular there was a reconstruction of a medieval knight from Scotland. Mm -hmm. I can't remember which Caspi was. They reconstructed his face, mm -hmm. and they specifically gave him really short hair, like a like a football hooligan, and that mm -hmm. was the kind of angle they were going for. But if you give him shoulder length, curly hair that was popular at the time, he'd look completely different. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's affecting how we perceive this historical person yeah. based entirely on modern aesthetic standards. Yeah, and it's such a fucking huge disservice to the public because, you know, unless you have had it drilled into your head that portraits are not supposed to be photorealistic, you know, you're going to be looking at that picture and saying, oh, you know, why would they lie to me? They've got a bunch of science words here. You know, that yeah. must mean it's accurate. Uh, they don't talk about the bias at all. They don't talk about, you know, the inherent racism that gets programmed into AI in the first place. You know, AI is only going to be as unbiased as the programmer. And mm, in yeah. order to be unbiased, you need to recognize that you have that bias in the first place, which, you know, a lot of people, they just don't do that. You know, especially yeah. when they're trying to, you know, look back at history. You know, we're always going to try and overlay our own understanding on that. You need to have, like, a lot of forethought to actually weed that stuff out. And if you're just feeding stuff into a machine um or like looking around for some comparative material then you know you're not going to have that nuance that you need to get you know what we might call a more accurate portrait um you mentioned there that the the uh, the crop up in various corners of the internet uh, and so forth mm -hmm. but um Kyle, given carl's example there you know, these are these cropping up in museums. Are these cropping up and actually being used for educational sources now, and and therefore being used to determine other historical in inverted commas facts about people? Mm -hmm. uh, some of them do. So, if you're going to have like an actual physical model in a museum, they usually go for the forensic angle. Uh, I think there's one mm -hmm. of like um Anne Boleyn uh, that ended up in the museum at some point. Again, it looks exactly like the one portrait that we have of her. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's it's got value there in that, you know, people can immediately relate to it as an actual person from history instead of like just some, you know, random fact floating around in the air. Uh, but, you know, because they're relating to it as a person, they're also assuming it's accurate. The AI ones, uh, they don't tend to show up in museums, uh, but... I have seen a lot of people get really excited about them for like, um, you know, primary school classrooms, Latin teachers, especially uh, the guy who did the Nero portrait did uh, all of the emperors and he put them on a big poster and Latin teachers were like, oh, my God, this is going to be so great for my classroom. My students can actually see what they all look like when we're learning Latin, which is a great idea. But then you actually look at it and you say, OK, so um, do you, this is a big big long line of white guys 
Okay. Mm. Uh, see, the, the one guy who was uh, actually from Africa has a bit of an afro and darker skin. But, um, yeah, I guess we're just going to gloss over that part. <laughs> uh, and go yep, right that's, back that's to, all you get. Job done. Yeah, yeah. So, like, if you're, you know, like, anyone besides, you know, typical white dudes sitting in the Latin classroom, how are you supposed to see that? You know, how are you supposed to put yourself yeah. in that history and say, oh, okay, I can be a part of this, too? Because there were tons and tons of non-white people in ancient Greece and Rome. Mm. And I know people on the internet like to think that it was like this white marble paradise full of like great morals and manliness and, you know, all of that shit. But, you know, the Mediterranean was a melting pot. You would have people from all over, you know, coming into these big centers like Athens and Rome and Carthage and you know, intermingling with each other, having kids, trading languages and stories and arts. And this idea of just like a white utopia, you know, that we've created for ancient Greece and Rome is it, it's completely false. Yeah. Um, and it's super harmful as well. Cause yeah. And that's, that's, that's what you're selling. If you make these 12 guys, Rome, this yeah. is Rome and nothing else. Yeah. Exactly. And like, they'll, they'll tell you that, you know, oh, you know, I looked at, you know, people in Italy today, and they all have this skin color. It's like, well, that's great. Do you think that the demographic hasn't changed over the past 2000 years? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, pe people move, you know, people, people definitely move. And like, how are you pulling this demographic? Anyways, hmm. what is your conception of race? Do you think that the Greeks and the Romans had the same conception because I can tell you they sure as hell didn't. You know, their idea of race was completely different from, you know, this modern thing that is based on skin color yeah. alone. Uh, you know, the Romans cared a lot more about citizenship. You know, if we look at, you know, some of the funerary, um, you know, monuments and remains from Roman Britain, you know, there's very wealthy black people who were living their nice Roman lives in Roman Britain, you know, just being themselves. You know, they they weren't being discriminated against because of the color of their skin. You know, if they had been, then they probably wouldn't have had that much money, you know, to make these incredibly elaborate funerary monuments. And we get yeah. examples like this from all across the empire, but, you know, they don't get the press and people just ignore them because they're really committed to this idea of like a white you know antiquity that can then feed into colonialism models in you know britain america france what have you so this is not so much about sort of lack of um portraits or it more feeds into this idea of putting a load of portraits in and getting that common denominator out because yeah, as you say, a lot of these portraits and images are used to create these reconstructions to get kind of an average of that person's cheekbones or nose mm -hmm. size or so forth. Mm -hmm. But if that's, if you're using, let's say you're using images of Cleopatra that range from actual coin of Mark Antony's time through to 1950s picture of Elizabeth Taylor, mm -hmm. there's going to be a lot of changes in art in that. How does mm -hmm. art change over the times? Right. So, I mean, I, I think that there's two angles you have to look at for that. One is purely technical. 
you know, what are they making these portraits out mm-hmm. of? And, you know, what things are they using to make them with? Uh, are you using paint? Are you using marble? You know, are you using wood? You know, that's going to change based on what is in style and what people think is fancy enough to have a portrait in, um, in that period. Second angle is, you know, what's kind of the visual language of self-presentation at that time? Yeah. So, like, when I'm explaining this whole, like, visual language, um, I'll usually tell people, like, okay, if you see someone, you know, walking around in, like, a pinstripe suit, you know, what's your first impression of them going to be? You know, it's going to be like, oh, you know, that that person, like, you know, they're dressed up for something, you know, they're um, obviously like, you know, maybe business minded, they're fancier. Uh, if you see someone that is, you know, dressed in like tie dye with like long braided hair, um, you know, you're probably going to make, you yeah. know, a slightly different snap judgment of what they're yeah. like as a person. But you know, we still make these snap judgments. So the visual language is taking all of those elements and saying, okay, I know what these things mean. So I am going to make a picture of myself that sends exactly the message that I want to send. I think it's been discussed this week, actually, with the, um, with, with like the coronation garb. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, of, of the new king. It's like, I'm not going to wear that. I'm going to turn up in this smart military uniform. It's exactly the same thing here, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, Ooh. if you're... A monarch, first of all, you are going to have, you know, way more capital to actually expend on this than your average person. You know, you're going to have a bigger catalog of things. You're you're not going to have a person from like Cheshire or something making the same decisions that Charles is making right now as far as his wardrobe goes. But, you know, the basic mechanism of it is the same. So if we look at portraits over time... You know, you can see a lot of really big trends throughout the ages. So if we're looking at, you know, ancient Romans, you know, there are at least four or five different portraits, you know, styles that people might go for. Uh, If we fast forward down to, you know, maybe um, France under um, Louis XV, you know, it's going to be a different kind of clothing, really different hairstyle. Uh, he's probably going to be posing in a specific way. Uh, he's going to be, you know, holding certain things. There's going to be certain colors in the room around him. Like mm-hmm. maybe, you know, red to represent the monarchy. You know, some kind of satin finish on his clothes to, you know, represent like, hey, I can afford these really expensive clothes. That sort of thing. So it, it enables you to really recognize what era a portrait is from if you know what was popular at what time you know kind of along those lines if you go to like uh mid-1800s britain you know people are going to be wearing like you know the empire dresses um at tea time you know which is based on greek models it's based on a greek chitin um because you know, they're really getting into kind of Greek mythology and this model of citizenship again. So that's all coming back, but they're doing it differently. The other angle, of course, is technological. So you can do different things with marble than you can do with a painting. Once, you know, painters get around to using oil paints versus um, egg tempura, you know, they suddenly have a lot more options in what they can actually do with the paints. 
same thing with like different kinds of brushes if you're doing something on a coin versus if you're painting it on a big wall somewhere that's all going to dictate exactly how much you can play with the image so putting all that together what we end up with is you know a series of really big trends um in portraits usually it's going to be someone really big and important that actually changes that trend although there there is some uh, discussion about like whether it's the big important person who actually does it first or you know if they're copying someone from a lower class and then they're just the ones making it popular um in portraits but you know either way they're they're the ones who are funding the art market at the time so they're the ones that are saying okay i'm gonna give you all this money make me look like this and then that yeah. becomes vogue for a while so you know that sort of basic trend is something that we're gonna see across all mediums you know, and you, you can date things pretty reliably um, based on that. But, you know, once we get to like the era of photography, especially kind of everything changes because <laughs> suddenly, you know, we're interested in, okay, what does a person actually look like? Um, I now have this machine that, you know, might as well like have a tiny elf inside painting, except yeah. that it's all science and like even then you get people who are like very stiff, you know, and they're posing and they're like, they're not going to smile because they don't want to smile in a picture. You know, that's not going to be serious enough for this occasion. Um, you get them wearing their best clothes and, you know, that, that kind of continues on. So, you know, <laughs> we get more of a focus on something being photo accurate and, you know, we've kind of, ingrained this idea that you know photos are going to be like exactly what a person looks like but i mean all you have to do is like go on a dating app to see that that's not true <laughs> uh you know it's we're sort of going back you don't you, i have never never seen a portrait of, of elizabeth first with mm -hmm. smallpox scars yep yeah <laughs> mm -hmm. exactly and like why the hell would she put smallpox yeah. scars on this portrait that she's probably you know paying the cost of a small town for <laughs> yeah you know i sure yeah. as hell wouldn't I, I, yeah just think yeah i want to make myself look good that's what got yeah. yeah yeah just thinking even more well, recently my own family photos from like the edwardian era there's one that's clearly they've all posed for a photo because they're all wearing three-piece mm -hmm. suits hats pocket watches and chains mm -hmm. and jewelry and they're all immaculate mm -hmm. but there's another that's a more candid photo and they're all scruffs they look like something out of peaky blinders in like falling out of their shirts <laughs> nothing's tucked in waistcoats open just like you kyle the, yeah just and even if, in fact yeah it's just like me yeah yeah i mean it's you know human nature to make ourselves look better in you know any sort of situation that we think is going to be more permanent you know because we're, we're not going to mm. have control of it after you know we can't go back into that photograph and say okay i think i'm going to change my hair now although funnily enough we do have some roman portraits that did yeah. that uh there's this one woman who had a funerary portrait made and it had removable hair so that um she awesome. actually, yeah she actually left money so that people could have new hair made whenever the trends changed and then they could just <laughs> like, come in and switch it out so you know some people think ahead they're smart like that but you know most of us you know, we, we kind of have to make do with, you know, whatever we can get in that moment. And, yeah. you know, we're sure as hell going to prep for that. Yeah, we've 
So we spent a while uh, dissing these reconstructions, um, but do they have any use? What could, what can these reconstructions be used mm-hmm. for good? So yeah, I, I definitely like to hate on the AI portraits. I've gotten into my fair share of internet battles over that, and I am not ashamed of it. But uh, you know, there is a lot of good that can be done with these portrait reconstructions. So they are great for getting people into history. First of all. There is a lot to be said for being able to look at a person that looks like you and say, oh, you know, maybe I have this connection with history now. You know, I I think the video Mm -hmm. games do a lot of the same thing. Uh, They allow people to kind of step into that world and have a connection to it that they can actually, you know, experience in real time. Uh, You know, the problem with that comes when you're not being careful about, you know, eliminating your biases uh, when you're actually, you know, making the portraits, uh, if yeah. you're selling it as something that is, you know, 100% what they look like rather than an artistic interpretation uh, and telling people that it's an interpretation. I- I'd say that if you're going to recreate a portrait like that, uh, the best thing you can do is A, put, you know, a lot of warnings on it. Um, you know, put a lot of tags saying like, you know, this is not meant to be 100% accurate. And here's why. Um, and you can also do a really careful study of the original. So you can see, okay, this was a reproduction. Um, this part was reconstructed. This part is actually original pigment. So, you know, if you can look at the statue and say, oh, I can see from some remnants of paint here that it had red hair. You know, that's great. Um, that is something that you can actually reconstruct based on actual evidence. And um, there's a guy who goes by the name of um, Chaps on Twitter, C-H-A-P-P-S, who does amazing uh, reconstructions of, you know, ancient statues and um, things that actually have remaining pigment on them. And those are super useful because, you know, again, they're based in history. They're based in, you know, something that is actually Mm. tangible evidence and not, you know, completely biased. Now, is there some bias in there? Yes. Um, I got a number of years ago, um, there was this exhibit, I think it started in Berlin, maybe, um, where uh, this person decided to make a bunch of replicas of really old Greek sculptures that had paint remnants on them. But instead of like kind of going halfway, it's like he took that reconstruction, just turned the saturation up to 100%. So you end up with yes. like these <laughs> super like bright, um, really jarring reconstructions, you know, from archaic yeah. Greece. Uh, there's an archer that is one of the ones that uh, comes across a lot because he's got like this really fabulous, like geometrically patterned tights on um, that, you know, you can't really see on the original one, but you can reconstruct it from some really, really faint pigments there. So what this guy did was he looked at it and said, okay, well, um, there's blue there. Um, so I'm just going to assume that they use the brightest, most intense blue that was available at the time. And I'm going to slap that on there. So y- you get reconstructions yeah. like that, which are useful to an extent, but you know, they don't really account for variations in like intensity or, you know, how much they wanted the material of the marble to show through things like that. Um, yeah, it's like, it's like they use the fill tool mm. on Microsoft. Yeah, Paint yeah, yeah, exactly. Everything's one completely flat color rather than any kind of shading yeah. or highlighting or nuance. Or yeah, I like mean, that. like, and if you want to look at statues while wearing sunglasses, then yeah, it's great. 
but <laughs> you know it's again it's got that same problem as you know the other reconstructions we we're talking about where yeah you may be using some authentic ancient evidence but you know you're not like you're not talking about your biases here um you're not recognizing that you know there is a flaw and you're not telling people that okay this is you know what it might have looked like um here's the evidence i used for it uh but this is definitely you know not 100% what the original was like so i mean yeah that's that type of portrait is always great to get people talking uh, my students always have very visceral reactions to it just fun <laughs> i i've had a few that have just been very violently opposed to it um and it's like if you're looking at um like the Sistine Chapel, for example, you've got, you know, the version that people are used to seeing, which is covered in like centuries worth of smoke and dirt and, you know, things like that. And then you've got the reconstructed version, which is like 10 million times brighter. You know, it's it's not what you're expecting, but in that case, that is actually what the original looked like because it's what was hidden under all that dirt. But people are still like, eh, you know, I don't know. That doesn't really fit with my preconception of the Sistine Chapel. You know, it, it looks so much more, you know, religious when it's covered in smoke, which is like a stupid thing to say. But again, you know, we've got this idea of the past and we want to make these portraits fit into that. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Kira. That was, uh, that, that splashed an awful lot of bright colour. <laughs> onto uh, <laughs> oh well played uh, onto an area that you could just uh, say uh, <laughs> yeah it's just getting, too marble and white <laughs> no thank you very much for bringing like two thousand years of rage yes. here of course I- I've been saving yes, it up just thank for you. you. Well, if you'd like to know more, then um, you can and should uh, follow Kira on Twitter at uh, Flavian Sofest. Uh, we're going to put up a range of links to images that have been discussed over the course of uh, uh, over the course of this podcast, uh, and she's on a variety of other social platforms as well. We will post links up to those in the show notes. Um, but it's been it's been really fun to dig into some ancient history for the first time, and we're hoping not the last. So classicists out there, get in touch. Thank you very much. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, I do hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage, or individually, I am at Paul Bavel. And I'm at Kyle G History. And we would love you to join the Angry Mob on Patreon, as this really helps us meet the cost of podcasting. Your £5 per month will get you early episodes three months in advance, entry into all of our free book draws, the invites put questions to future guests, and, of course, the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash History Rage. But until next week, stay angry. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.